Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm Josefina Chavarria, the director of the Peace Accords Matrix and an associate professor of the practice here at the Croc Institute. And in this episode of the Croc Cast, we'll be having the second of two conversations with authors of newly published policy briefs. The PAM policy brief series seeks to provide accessible material to inform practitioners, policy, decision, and peacemakers about best practices and recommendations for design and implementation of peace accords. The collection is authored by faculty, students, and researchers whose work has been based on the PAM dataset and other field-related scholarly publications at the Kroc Institute. The briefs address content and process-related issues in peace agreement design and implementation, and you can access the full text of the briefs on our PAM website at www.peaceaccords.nd.edu slash policy. So joining me today, we have two great friends and researchers, Cecile Mouli and Luis Peña. Cecile is a research professor at the Latin American Faculty of Social Sciences. We know this by its acronym FLAXO in Ecuador. And she's also the coordinator of the research group on peace and conflict. Welcome, Cecile. Thank you very much, uh, Josefina. I'm very happy uh, to take part in this broadcast with uh, Luis and you. And we also have Luis Peña. Luis was a visiting research fellow here at the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies until very recently, and we miss him already. And he's also the Vice President of the International Association of Reconciliation Studies. Hi, Luis. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Josefina. Thank you for inviting me for, for this conversation. It's a pleasure to, to be with you and Cecile. So I'm going to ask the both of you some questions that can help our, our community, our audience, connect with the briefs that you have published and hopefully be very excited to come to our website, download them and read them. And of course, get in contact with you as authors. So Cecile, um, you and I co-authored this brief together. So this is a, a kind of a, a weird situation. I'm the moderator, but at the same time, I co-authored your brief. And the title of our brief is A Panoramic View of Actors for Successful Peace Accord Implementation. So I was wondering if you could uh, share with our community what are those factors that are important to consider when we want to implement peace accords in a successful way. Thank you very much, Josefina. In the paper that we wrote together, uh, we divided the most important factors to consider for successful implementation of peace agreements into four broad categories. The first one is the context of the armed conflict, which refers to the characteristics of the armed conflict in terms, for example, of length, number of parties, relationship between conflict parties, and so on. The second one, is the implementation context, which has to do with the international and regional context, as well as external support. 
The third one is the quality of the peace agreement, and it has to do with the characteristics of the accord. The fourth and last one deals with implementation actors and includes various aspects related to these actors. Each broad category encompasses a series of factors that can impinge on the implementation of peace agreements. So for example, in terms of conflict context, we mainly discuss how the duration and intensity of armed conflict, as well as the multiplicity of conflict parties and the breadth of divisions between the parties make peace implementation more challenging. We also talk about the relative strength of spoilers compared to pro-peace actors and the presence of valuable spoils such as diamonds or coltan, both of which can hamper peace implementation. For instance, according to a joint study by Stanford University and the International Peace Academy, between 1997 and 2000, no peace agreement has been implemented successfully in situations where there have been, where there were valuable spoils that could easily be traded. So to wrap up, within each category, there are a number of factors that can influence peace implementation. And we wrote this policy brief to bring attention to these factors because we believe that it is important for conflict parties, peace practitioners and scholars to take them into account as well as their potential impact on the implementation process and do this more systematically. For instance, in terms of policy implications regarding the conflict context, we stress the importance of fostering dialogue among broad sectors of society about the peace process, starting with the negotiation phase in order to reduce polarization and enhance the, cap the legitimacy of peace negotiations and future peace agreements, which will increase, obviously, the possibility of implementation. Thank you, Cecile. Uh, you also made me think about our role in Colombia with the Barometer Initiative, where we are able to follow up the implementation of the commitments in the agreement. But we're always also speaking with, with the community, with the international community, with uh, scholars and implementation agencies about these many other factors that are affecting the process. So I think it is uh, it actually has very uh, practical implications. Uh, Luis, I wanted to turn now our attention to your brief, which is called Territorializing Peace. How do we make peace building territorial? And, you know, uh, territorial is, is such a key word uh, within peace building uh, communities in Colombia. We have it inscribed in our peace accord. But I do wonder if uh, our community here of the Croc cast really understands what we mean by territorial peace building. So let's start with the basics. How do you define territorial peace? Yeah, thank you for the question. Yes, um, as you know, the, the peace agreement introduced this expression, the territorial peace, which the proposed was that promote the territorial transformation to start the conflict recurrence and also to stop the, uh, to promote the participation of uh, local communities and institutions in peace building. This notion of territorial peace required to recognize that war has been inherently a territorial process in the sense that the, the effects of armed conflict are regional, regionally diverse and also in the sense that the war has created economic landscapes, special narratives of our regions, has transformed the way in which people appropriate their everyday places, and has created a country with many territorial disputes. 
And in this process of specifying the, the, the term territorial peace was very interesting, uh, the emergence of several visions of what territory is and how the people, different actors uh, interpreted how should it change to transform or should be transformed to, to peace building. And I can say that there are main three, three, three perspectives about territorial peace. The first is this uh, uh, modern liberal perspectives in which the territory is a repository of exploitable resources for economic development. And in this perspective, the territorial peace means uh, basically modernizing the territory that is invested in economic infrastructure, bringing the state institutions to the periphery, and uh, democratizing the land ownership, for example. A second perspective that emerged in this dialogue about what the meaning of territorial peace was, this perspective coming from the ethnic territorial social movements. For, for, for the social movements, the territory is a physical and a symbolic space. And the perspective of the peace is very interesting, I find. Uh, is the, the notion that peace is the restitution and reparation of collective functions of the territory. And from this perspective, the territorial peace entails to create an alternative economic landscape, an alternative uh, relations with nature, a, a new senses of place, uh, alternative territorial orders. The third perspective, is the perspective that I can call the political geography perspective on territory. And from this standpoint of view, the territory is a set of political jurisdictional structures. And uh, from, from this perspective, the is the institutionalized political jurisdictional orders. I mean, municipalities, departments, uh, they don't serve to promote the social welfare, economic prosperity, the protection of the nature and cultural diversity. And the way in which they trans uh, understand uh, the territorial peace is to reconcile the state's political geography with the environmental, economic, and cultural geography of people that innovate the country. And in the peace agreement, you find that the, the, the notion of territorial peace as territorial modernization is the predominant one. And this notion, for example, has become a convergent convergence point for several social actors, included uh, social movements committed in, in peace. The second perspective is it's not excluded, the, the perspective of social movements that understand peace as restitution of collective functions of the territory. And there are many instruments to promote this, uh, this notion. And the third perspective was uh, excluded, despite it was the notion of peace that opened this debate about the nexus between peace and territory 30 years ago. Thank you, Luis. That's, that's really helpful to see these different perspectives and to think about also the different plural ways in which we can incorporate an understanding of territory in territorial peace building. Cecile, uh, you were 
talking before about these four factors that affect implementation processes of peace agreements. And uh, you expanded a little bit on the context of armed conflict, but I wanted to ask you if you could help us shed light on the second factor about the context of implementation as well. How does it impact the process of building peace? And if you can uh, speak also something about the implementation actors, I think it would be it would be really great. Thank you. Thank you, Josefina. Um, in terms of the implementation context, what we do in our briefing is uh, first we emphasize the crucial role that international verification missions. Uh, which include large peacekeeping operations, such as, for example, MONUSCO in uh, the DRC, but also smaller special political missions can play in providing security guarantees to conflict parties and the population at large as well, and in monitoring the implementation of peace agreements. This is not something new. There's, There's been a lot of attention given to the provision of security guarantees by external actors in academia and practice. According to Barbara Walter, for instance, such guarantees are crucial to overcome credible commitment problems. That is the fear by each party that the other one is going to take advantage of its vulnerability and fail to abide by its commitments. And this is particularly the case of non-state armed groups. These groups often perceive that after laying down their weapons and demobilizing, they will no longer have sufficient leverage over the government to demand compliance of key provisions. So this is why security guarantees are particularly important and also obviously to address the fear of these actors uh, of uh, physical attacks by, by the other party. We also mentioned how external actors can provide critical financial support for peace implementation, help with the reintegration of former combatants in security sector reform, support institution building and capacity building, all of which will have a positive effect on peace implementation. So here we talk about uh, how this can generate a positive cascading effect. This means that the implementation of a provision can encourage the implementation of other provisions, other processes contemplated in in the peace agreement. Also, reciprocity increases mutual trust. And if key provisions are successfully implemented, this uh, will encourage the application of other provisions. We also discuss how both the international and the regional contexts matter, in particular instability in neighboring countries and hostile relations between countries can be significant hurdles to peace implementation. We can think of environments such as the Great Lakes region, for example, where the situation in countries such as Rwanda has impinged on that in Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the closely related dynamics between Chad, the Central African Republic, and Darfur. It is necessary to consider that this kind of environment has an effect on peace implementation. As for implementation actors, it is important to think that While peace talks usually happen behind closed doors among a small number of participants, the implementation of comprehensive peace agreements involves a larger number of actors, given that provisions concern society at large. 
The active participation of broad sectors of society at all levels generates greater ownership of the implementation process and can exert pressure on those responsible for executing provisions, making them more accountable. Ownership is of utmost importance to sustain peacebuilding processes in the long run. Which is why in our brief with COSIFINA, we recommend that implementation actors involve broad sectors of society beyond conflict parties in the implementation process so that large segments of society can perceive this process to be beneficial and own it. External actors, along with national ones, can also be key to press for the application of provisions, especially when they refer to structural reforms, which are usually the most challenging ones to implement. As we've seen in different parts of the world, when the public at large feels estranged from the peace process, it is more difficult to implement provisions that will alter the status quo and bring about social change. We also contend that the involvement of mediators from the peace negotiation phase as guarantors and supporters during implementation is useful, since they have built a close relationship with conflict parties, help them to develop a vision of peace, and are committed to support the agreements that they have facilitated. And this has actually taken place in various peace processes, such as the Guatemalan one, for example, where the UN played a role as a mediator in the peace negotiations, and then as a verificator in the implementation phase. Finally, implementation agents need to coordinate among themselves and their timeframe should be long enough for them to support key structural reforms that can require a decade or even more to be fully implemented. And all of these obviously have important policy implications. Cecile, thank you so much for all your considerations in relation to the actors. I think that this is uh, one of the key points that your work and, and the work we've done as at the Peace Accords Matrix highlights. I wanted to go back to the question of territorial peace. And Luis, I thank you very much for, in your previous answer, for highlighting how both war and peace have territorial implications. Um, but then let's go a step further. If, if we're not only talking about concepts and relationships, but if we're talking about institutional arrangements such as peace agreements. So how, how is that territorial peace to be understood or considered or included in peace agreements and also in the monitoring of those peace agreements? Thank you. Thank you, Sabina. Uh, yes, uh, taking into account what I mentioned previously, I would say that the peace agreement is a set of instruments for peace that should serve to identify and monitor three territorial dimensions of peace. Uh, first is the transformation of spatial structures of economic and political, political orders inherited from conflict. The second is the transformation of spatial representation on which peace, on which uh, is based the violent intervention or in which is based the centralist or the undervaluation of rural communities. And third, the transformation of fear and uprooting that violence that has created in, in many places. I'm not saying that the peace accord should be focused on this, but the, the peace agreements should incorporate these three dimensions transversely in the truth and reconciliation, uh, reparations, demobilization, reintegration, rural economic transformations initiatives, for example. And it is also important uh, that 
in the mechanism uh, of monitoring uh, be implemented or created uh, some tools for knowing the geography of peace agreement implementation. And this is the first uh, step for, for measure the impact of peace agreement. In my policy brief, I describe some promise that we have had in, in Colombia uh, with, the, with these tools. Uh, but yes, I highlight these these two questions, taking into account these three dimensions and defining a platform available for for the public uh, to see the cartography, if you want, the maps of the uh, implementations of a uh, peace agreement. Thank you very much, Luis. Yes, I think that you have instilled in us a, a, a very deep curiosity to see how those maps of implementation, how we can imagine them and hopefully one day we'll be able to hold them in our hands or see them on the screen. And I, I have just a couple more of questions uh, for each of you. And the last question for you, Cecile, is you were also talking in that one of the main factors that has an impact on the quality of the implementation is the quality itself of the peace agreement, that this is a very crucial factor. Can you elaborate on that something more, some more, please, for our community? The quality of peace agreements refers to various aspects of a peace agreement. And it is important uh, to think of peace implementation not in isolation, but as a continuum that follows from the negotiation phase and is shaped by it. This is why what happens at the negotiation stage, and in particular, the peace agreements that result from it, have an influence on peace implementation. And even though peace accords are mainly negotiated by the conflict parties, there is often room for different actors to influence their design in a way that can enhance the likelihood for their provisions to be implemented. So first of it, the comprehensiveness of the accord, that is how much it deals with the root causes of armed conflict and the various factors that feed it, contributes to effective peace implementation. And this has been shown both in research and practice. Second, peace accords need to have clear and sufficiently precise provisions. That is, negotiators must delineate provisions in a way that make clear what is to be implemented, who is responsible for it, and the time frame for implementation and verification. But having said this, provisions must not be too rigid in order to adapt to context. In particular, we should expect differences and even disputes to arise in the implementation phase. And this should be addressed through dialogue among conflict parties and implementation agencies, which is why it is important that peace accords contemplate such dialogue and dispute resolution mechanisms. Also, monitoring and verification mechanisms create assurances for the signatory parties, and past experience tells us that when such mechanisms include the participation of an impartial third party, they are more effective. This is why it is important to include external and international support in the design and implementation of the peace agreement and of specific provisions. So, in sum, to summarize, it's crucial to include safeguards in the text of peace agreements, make it clear who will be responsible for the implementation of each provisions, in which time frame, who is going to verify its application, and which mechanisms the parties should use to solve disputes. Thank you very much, Lucille. It sounds really like a, like a, a very interesting read, very complementary, everything that you've said. 
Luis, one last question that uh, we wanted to to have for you would be, what is the impact that this particular territorial approach to peace and peace building can have on a country's political system? Are there, for example, specific reforms that uh, come about as a result of implementing the peace agreement through this particular territorial approach? Uh, I would say if I would uh, emphasize or highlight one contribution or one effect of putting uh, in the uh, desk this uh, discussion of uh, territorial peace, I would emphasize uh, the decentralization process. Uh, the territorial approach is by definition contrary to the to this uh, centralism. I mean this this form of governing from the from, from the urban centers and designing and imposing economic development plans uh, by officials who don't know understand or value the country psychological economical economic and cultural diversity. So for me, this the, the peace agreement inspired by by the territorial perspective have a, a great impact of motivating debates on decentralization uh, and the transformation of relations between officials and uh, local communities. And, and the Peace Accord in Colombia has a good example of how the decentralization motivates this dialogue. In the peace agreement uh, was created uh, a figure for making regional dialogues, local dialogues, it was the uh, the figure of the uh, development programs with territorial approach. And uh, they were defined 170 municipalities and the people in these uh, 170 municipalities propose diverse projects for uh, combating the problems that are affecting the economic functioning, the institutional weakness, uh, the poverty, the illicit economies, etc. And yeah, for, for me, this is a good example of how the territorial approach promotes these discussions on decentralization. And this is something that for for the donors, for international agencies, states, peace builders, etc., many act many actors in the national and the international level has to take into account this this connection between uh, decentralization of planning and peace building. Perfect. Thank you so much, Luis, and thank you very much to both. Uh, Luis and Cecile for being together uh, with us today in this episode of the Crockcast. I'm sure our community is going to be enjoying these conversations very much. During our session today, unfortunately, uh, there was a third author uh, who couldn't participate. Her name is Ilana Rodkop. And I want to sincerely invite our audience to log to our website and read Ilana's brief that is titled New and Reformed Constitutions, Methods for Legalizing Comprehensive Peace Agreements. It is an inspiring piece uh, that seeks to address 
the following two questions. Um, how do peace agreements lead to new constitutions? And can constitutionalizing comprehensive peace agreement provisions supplement or reinforce peace accords? And so I'm very glad to, to have uh, the two of you here uh, in our podcast. And I thank you for your participation. And I thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Josefina and Luis. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I look forward uh, to um, uh, listening to uh, more from the Crowdcast series. Thank you, Josefina. And thank you, uh, Cecile, for this conversation. It was a pleasure to, to hear you and learn from you. I'm motivated to, to read the briefs, the policy briefs and the website. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.